0: The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio show do not necessarily
1: reflect those of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting or its affiliates. KHLT and Take12Radio.com are not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship.
0: Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with Chris Schroeder and Monty Meyer. And now, here's those two guys who investigate prior to contempt Chris and the Monty Man. Investigate prior to contempt. Wah, wah, wah. Really? Well, I hope so, and perhaps if we do a little investigating then we won't have that contempt. Welcome to Walking Through the Big Book with my friend Chris Schroeder. Hey Chris. Hey
1: Monty, how are you doing this week?
0: I am doing fabulous. It's been absolutely awesome here weather wise. It's been about seventy five degrees, no breeze, just beautiful and I've I've got the studio door open every day. It's wonderful.
1: Same here. Uh, I love the summer, I've gotta tell you that.
0: Well what are we gonna do today? What are we talking? We've gone through the um, We've gone through the dust jacket. We've gone through the preface, the first, uh, the, the forward to the first and second edition. Now on to the uh, forward to the third, right?
1: Right. I hope to get uh, through the forward to the third edition and fourth edition and into the doctor's opinion uh, today. So uh, maybe, maybe we'll, uh, we'll get started.
0: Let's do it, man.
1: Okay. Forward to the third edition. And, again, this is from a fourth edition, 16th printing, uh, the book that I'm going through. I don't know that it makes much difference which printings. Uh, But sometimes it makes uh, a difference what edition you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But here it is. By March 1976, when this edition went to the printer, the total worldwide membership of Alcoholics Anonymous was conservatively estimated at more than 1 million, with almost 28,000 groups meeting in over 90 countries. You know, I, I I should mention that I think back in the 70s, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was paying a little bit more attention to its census.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: I don't know that they do the same. Uh, uh, they they have the same level of intensity with it. But some of the some of the figures I've heard were, uh, are roughly around th- three to five million members worldwide. Wow! And depending on which statistics you use, so that, mm-hmm. that's a that's a growth since 1976 of four or five hundred percent, which is which is pretty good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Surveys of groups in the United States and Canada indicate that AA is reaching out not only to more and more people, but to a wider and wider range. Women now make up more than one-fourth of the membership. Among newer members, the proportion is nearly one-third. Seven percent of the AA surveyed are less than 30 years of age, among them many in their teens. These statistics have definitely changed. Yeah, heard that women are closing in on fifty percent, and certainly people less than thirty years of age are are much greater than seven percent now.
0: Well, let me ask you a question real quick. I think maybe we touched on it last week. I'm not sure, but mm-hmm. uh, my brain is mush much, most of the time. Um, there was a period of time when the guys really didn't want the women involved. Correct?
1: You know that uh, that is correct. You're you're, you're not going to find any of this in uh, the AA conference approved literature, but when you start investigating uh, some of the some of the historical stories, some of the stories that some of the earliest members told, uh, you'll find that in the very beginning, um, uh, probably the first four years, when they were really basically the the Oxford Group contingent, mm-hmm. uh, they really wanted. You know, this is a uh, this is a horrific to modern listeners, but <laughs> once the women in the kitchen with the coffee pots and, and the men were to get about the business of uh, of recovery and God out in the living room, and you know, that was basically, you know, y- you gotta put, whenever you're studying something like this, you have to put it into historical context.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: it's easy to say, you know, this, this book is uh, chauvinistic and, you know, sexist. It's very easy to say that, but when you, uh, when you look at the time, when you look at the late 30s, you're gonna see that, uh, uh, in a historical context, that wasn't so unusual. It also wasn't so unusual for, like, everybody to be smoking cigarettes and, and drinking coffee. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and today, today that's not true. Probably most of the meetings are non-smoking. Uh, so you you look at it in the in the uh, critical historical context and you'll you'll get some understanding about sure. what, what was going on during the time. Yeah. You know, I relate a lot of big book studies to the way um, the way the Bible is studied. You can study something critically, historically, like a scientist would, or you can study it devotionally, mm-hmm. like practical application. How do you put these principles in, into your life, right, uh, to to get a better life and to get the desired result? Uh, hopefully, we're going to cover a little bit of both of those. You know, we're, sometimes we'll be critically historical, sometimes we'll be uh, uh, will be devotional, which would mean uh, basically we'll be looking at uh, the recovery. Uh, the, the processes of recovery that these early uh, members used, and trying to uh, show how those, those same principles can be applied today.
0: Yeah. yeah. And
1: again, it uh, uh, has, a, has uh, connotations, or, or uh, basically it has uh, the same type of ramifications that uh, you get when you do uh, biblical studies. Sure,
0: sure, because t- today it's no big deal if you shave in public. You know, I mean, <laughs> in certain parts of biblical times, that was a bad thing to do.
1: Yeah, well, sure, Yeah, and yeah. C- certain things meant different things yeah, you back bet. then. And, uh, but, but the basic the basic principles are still applicable today, and certainly uh, certainly that's the way it is with, with this book. The principles that worked so well in the late 30s for recovery from alcoholism, they still work. They're, they're spiritual principles. They... They don't change over time. Uh, You know, you're not going to come up with a better pill every year,
0: right? That's That's
1: unfortunately that's not uh, the recovery. uh, How the best um, uh, recovery experience is to be had today. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't really have it uh, medically, although uh, medicine can help. Sure. Sure. The the basic principles of the AA program, it appears, hold good for individuals with many different lifestyles. Just as, just as the program has brought recovery to those of many different nationalities. Again, when it says basic principles of the AA program, I believe what they're talking about is they're talking about certainly the steps as uh, the primary uh, methodology of recovery, but they're also talking about the principles inherent in this book or are many, many principles that are applicable to one's uh, behavior. How you uh, how you operate out there in the world, uh, but there's also the, the program, and certainly anyone that's applied that over the years uh, since 1939 or so, when the book hit the streets, uh, the people that have applied these things have gotten the results of those applications, mm-hmm. and and they're basically uh, saying that in this forward. The 12 steps that summarize the program may be called Las Dos Pasos in one country and Las Dos Tapas in another, but they trace exactly the same path to recovery that was blazed by the earliest members of Alcoholics Anonymous. In spite of the great increase in the size and the span of this fellowship, at its core it remains simple and personal. Each day somewhere in the world recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. I really like the the, the forward uh, to the third edition. There's there's nothing in it uh, that I would see um, uh, that that I would see has changed from the beginning. Uh, the forward to the fourth edition uh, has some things in it that I think they've lost sight a little bit of uh, uh, of the mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the fourth edition, if you get a first printing fourth edition. You're going to see that there was some statements statements made in the forward to the fourth edition that created uproar uh, amongst the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous groups, and there was a lot of pressure to change some of the things that were said in it. Unfortunately, I don't have a first printing, or I would show you the differences. Mm-hmm. But I but I I remember uh, I remember a little bit about them, and I'll point them out as as we go through. Okay. This fourth edition of Alcoholics Anonymous came off the press in November of 2001, at the start of a new millennium. Since the third edition was published in 1976, worldwide membership in AA has just about doubled, to an estimated 2 million or more with nearly 100,800 groups meeting in approximately 150 countries around the world. So that's an additional 60 countries from 1976. There's been incredible inroads into, really, uh, third-world countries, so the countries in Asia, uh, certainly Europe uh, uh, probably was counted in, in the third edition. Uh, but it's, it's really, really uh, getting around. And, again, what happens is uh, expatriates land in a country, and they've been, uh, they've been involved with, uh, with the fellowship for a long period of time. And you know, for their own self-preservation, and for the good of all, they'll establish uh, they'll establish AA meetings. And a lot of times, what will happen is they will uh, they'll they'll put together service structure because there's there's other material available. There's the service manual, 12 concepts uh, for world service. There's the traditions. There's all the information about contacting uh, AA world services, and they'll start uh, a service structure. And that's when basically that's when uh, Uh, A.A. in New York will find out about them, you know, once they start Mm -hmm. registering up and making themselves known, and they do keep track of all of this uh, in in New York, and they try to be as helpful as as they can. Literature has played a major role in A.A.'s growth, and a striking phenomenon of the past quarter century has been the explosion of translations of our basic literature into many languages and dialects. In country after country where the A.A. seed was planted, it has taken root. Solely at first, then growing by leaps and bounds, when literature has become available. Currently, Alcoholics Anonymous has been translated into 43 languages. They're forever asking for uh, translator volunteers. You know, so if if anybody knows a bizarre language out there, uh-huh. uh, check with AA World Services. They they may be looking for uh, for translators. But some inter- interest, interesting sto- an interesting story about this uh, Japan. Uh, was translating uh, uh, the big book, and what was happening was was in Japan. Uh, AA meetings were popping up. It's still kind of in its infancy in Japan, uh, but they they really started to do it right. Now it was I found this strange at first when I was told this, but I believe they were on the right track. Obviously, the book Alcoholics Anonymous was first to be translated. What do you think the second book to be translated was?
0: Oh boy, I don't think it was the 12 by 12 It was not Uh, Gosh, tell me, I don't know
1: AA Comes of Age Oh, okay Uh, The history of, uh, the conference approved history Of Alcoholics Anonymous Uh, They really believed that that should be the next book So that these groups could understand how the fellowship grew Mm -hmm. How the groups grew and, and what they had learned So that the same mistakes aren't made in that country. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As the message of recovery has reached large numbers of people, it has also touched the lives of a vastly greater variety of suffering alcoholics. When the phrase, We Are People Who Would Normally Not Mix, page 17 of this book, was written in 1939, it referred to a fellowship composed largely of men and a few women with quite similar social, ethnic, and economic backgrounds. It were mostly all failed white-collar uh, city folk. Yeah. <clears throat> Like so much of AA's basic text, those words have proved to be far more visionary than the founding members could have ever imagined. The stories added to this edition represent a membership whose characteristics of age, gender, race, and culture have widened and have deepened to encompass virtually everyone of the first 100, everyone of the first 100 members could have hoped to reach. While our literature has preserved the integrity of the AA message. Now, here's here's what it basically said in the first printing. Um, uh, This this book preserves the AA message that was, uh, they said that was what people used to recover, and then they went on with their sentence. That caused a lot of consternation, because what, what they were saying was, People in the old days used the recovery process from the big book. That's what it was implying. Mm. You can imagine that there were a lot of people who were going to have a problem with Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So so they changed it to, while our literature has preserved the integrity of DAA message, sweeping changes in society as a whole are reflected in new customs and practices within the fellowship. One thing that that New York is uh, is famous for is uh, diversity, inclusion, uh, uh, really trying to stay out of uh, business that it doesn't feel it should get involved with within the groups <clears throat> and, uh, and, and today there's, um, there's not as much emphasis on adherence to the big book processes as there used to be. They want it to be more open, they want it <clears throat> to be more uh, inclusionary and they really want groups to be able to feel their way into whatever you know, whatever works for those groups. Don't
0: don't you think though? I mean, obviously there there's a lot of benefit to that, but don't you think there's some drawbacks with that too?
1: Well, to throw my my personal opinion in there, I, I, I think I think there is. I think I think that a lot of people are showing up in Alcoholics Anonymous who may not uh, may not be uh, as desperate. Yeah. as some of the first members, may not need uh, the, the, uh, the rigorous um, honesty and uh, adherence to these principles uh, that some of the earlier members did, and, and they can be fine, because their alcoholism hadn't, hasn't progressed down the scale far enough. But, uh, but I think by taking our eye off of, uh, off of the picture, which is basically the recovery process and principles in this book, what can happen is 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 groups can become less effective in dealing with the with the really um re, uh the the al- alcoholic who has a real aggressive they're in an aggressive and chronic state of alcoholism they're going to be less uh, effective in dealing with them if they aren't really up to speed on the recovery processes uh, that are in this book, that's that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I be, I believe it it's borne out you know through the experience of a lot of people.
0: And I think so, and I and I concur with that. I mean, and I think listeners know me by now well enough to know that I I feel that way. I, and I think it's kind of like, uh, and I don't want to get off this too much, but it's kind of like you can. Um, you could take something and change it and change it and change it and lose things in the translation, so to speak, uh, that are so important for those of us who are of the desperate <laughs> type. Um, but if you kept everything of the desperate type, for those who are of the desperate type, um, really, you might offend some folks. But you know what, Chris? I'm finding that more and more people that, that get offended over things like that are offended all day anyway.
1: You know that can be true. What what I how I kind of see it, Monty is: is it a good idea to open the doors to everybody and everyone that is asking for help? That's probably a good idea.
0: Yeah.
1: But there needs to be uh, there there needs to be experienced members. There you go. Uh, that are always in these groups that can recognize the people who are in real trouble. They're not there for a DUI or because you know they got caught uh, drinking too much at the cocktail party, right? You know, uh, they're in there because they're they're uh, desperately dependent on alcohol. There needs to be um, uh, there needs to be people who still understand uh, yeah. that the recovery yeah. process is valid and will work for those low-bottom, chronic, uh, unbelievably dependent alcoholics that, uh, that you still get. You, you can, you probably, uh, you know, let's say, let's say a group wants to know how they're doing. Well, how much relapse is going on in your group? Are there people that are coming in all the time, raising their hands, saying they're coming back?
0: Oh yeah. If,
1: if they are, it's, it's not necessarily the person who's relapsing's fo- fault.
0: Yeah, that's it, right. It
1: can be the fault of the group for not offering an adequate presentation and experience of recovery. Uh, they may they may just have a hands off policy. You, you know, uh, yep. I'm, I don't want to bother with him. You know, he's he's drunk or something. There needs to be a core group of elders uh, with experience in in different groups that that can help those those people. Otherwise, what will happen is you've opened the doors so wide, so many people have come in, that you've forgotten about who this fellowship was developed for in the first place, the chronic low-bottom alcoholic, and you're going to let them die because you're, you you're much too interested in being all inclusive. Mm-hmm. That makes any sense. And again, you know, that's that's my opinion. Take it take it for what it's worth. Um I I uh, I don't accuse uh, any specific group of being that way but um but you know, the trend uh, the trend has kind of been in that direction unfortunately lately.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Taking advantage of the technological advances, for example, AA members with computers can participate in meetings online, sharing with fellow alcoholics across the country or around the world. Now, this is something that got a lot of criticism, too, but they did not change it. Everyone was saying, you know, uh, it it basically goes on to say, in any meeting, anywhere, AAs share experience, strength, and hope with each other in order to stay sober and help other alcoholics modem to modem or face-to-face, AAs speak the language of the heart in all its power and simplicity. Now, modem to modem, we talked about this last week. Modem to modem is great as well as if, if, that's, or if that's all you have, if you're a loner or someone wh- who, is, who is just not able uh, geographically to get involved face-to-face with people in meetings or to find alcoholics to help. Modem to modem is certainly acceptable. Mm-hmm. If it's easier for you to just quit going to meetings and quit working with alcoholics and just go on online meetings all day, I don't. I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think that's uh, a, a reasonable answer. No. I don't think. I think alcoholism is an aggressive illness. If you don't take an aggressive stand with your recovery participation you lessen your chances for long-term recovery.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, you want to talk about a watered-down program. When you're not plugged in and participating as much as you possibly are able to just to sit back and and sit on the couch and listen to some audio tape, you know, because I knew people that did that before before the Internet came along. They'd go to a convention once in a while, get a bunch of tapes, go home, and that was all they ever did. Same thing.
1: Uh, again, there's so many things that you can do supplementally. Yeah. I think li- listening to uh, recovery tapes uh, as, uh, as a supplemental activity uh, in and around meeting steps and services is a good thing. If you come to rely upon it solely, you're really not practicing uh, the principles or, or following the instructions. And the instructions are very, very clear in the chapter working with others, what, what kind of business you're supposed to be about. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, do you have the right uh, to work whatever program you want to work? Absolutely. Uh, do, do you have the flexibility to do just about anything you want? Absolutely. And, uh, and Bill Wilson talks about this a little bit in the 12 and 12. He basic, He basically states... If an AA member fails to perfect and enlarge their, uh, I'm sorry, he says that uh, uh, if, uh, if an AA member uh, uh, fails to adhere to the 12-step process, they almost certainly sign their own death warrant. Uh, this isn't an opinion, it's facts based out of our experience. Uh, uh, their, their desolation and dissolution is not going to be caused by people in power, it's going to be caused by their failure to adhere to spiritual principles. In other words, You know the 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 taskmaster, uh, the taskmaster is alcohol. If if you fail to participate enough to maintain sobriety, you get drunk. Mm -hmm. And again. Your ego is going to want to take responsibility for it. Like, well, you know, I, you know, I got drunk, and I got drunk because of this, or I got drunk because of that. Well, if you're a chronic alcoholic, if you're dependent on alcohol in a big way, if you're what this book describes as a real alcoholic, you have very, very little to do with your, with your relapse, except that you have failed uh, miserably at practicing spiritual principles. Yeah. It's not a matter of power, choice, and con- control. The book makes it that their position on power, choice, and control is, you've lost it. Yeah. And you only get it back uh, uh, manifesting through God if you uh, practice certain principles.
0: And I think we said that last week about uh, somebody that says, well, if I had only gone to more meetings, or if I'd only done this, that was actually a a statement of pride. Uh,
1: you, You know... Maybe you didn't have the power to go to more meetings. Maybe because you weren't practicing spiritual principles, you didn't have the power to stay. Maybe you weren't even there when you went to the bar and picked up the drink, because that usually is something that would be considered an insane decision. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're a chronic alcoholic. You drank 20 years. You ruined your life. You lost your license. You've lost your jobs. Your family left and you get yourself into, uh, into, into recovery, uh, you're, you're participating in the fellowship, and you're only doing kind of a half-measure attempt, you know, uh, when you go to the bar, you don't go there on a truth. You go there in an insane state, because putting alcohol back in your body can be nothing more than an insane decision. You know what it does to you. You know what the results are. You, you know, you have very little power over it once you start drinking. You know, it's you know it's basically the cause of really, really uh, intense problems in your life. How could you actually walk across the street to the bar with with a, a, you know in a in a state of sanity and order more booze? You know that that would be like that would be like if you finally recovered from polio after fifteen years of treatments. You, you know, to go back to the polio farm and try to get polio again. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not—it's not something that makes any real logical sense. So, you know, again, to look at this, to look at this book, uh, uh, to look at this book, and look at the basic message of it. The basic message is that the alcoholic, at, at, you know, at certain times has no mental defense against the first drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've lost the power of choice and control in drink. and unless they have uh, a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening, there's little hope of their recovery. Now people have challenged that position over the years. Uh, many people in, in psychology and, and medicine and you know they, they've challenged it because it doesn't really fit a lot of you know the, the, cri- the mental health criteria, that you come across today, but it sounds very, very logical. He was not, he was not, uh, they were not uh, psychologists, you know, they didn't understand mental health the way people in in the mental health fields understand it today, they were laymen, and they were just trying to describe it as best they could describe it, and they basically described it as uh, an insane Uh, thought that precedes the first rank or a strange mental blank spot that precedes the first rank and if you uh, if you've gone down the scale far enough there's little hope of your recovery unless there's something that can treat that strange mental blank spot and education won't do it Um, uh, therapy will normally not do it medication normally will not do it it has to be uh, of a very very profound nature and again, when I'm, you know, when I'm describing alcoholism in the weeks that, uh, that we move forward, I'm describing, I'm describing a very, very critical, chronic type of alcoholism, because that's what they were dealing with. So to understand this book, you, under, you need to understand it in context. And in context, they were working with people that they were pulling out of sanitariums, people who had drank themselves basically insane, that was mainly the type of people that they were working with. Mm-hmm. So that's that's good news and that's bad news. You know, the bad news is a lot of people don't relate to that today because they haven't, they haven't experienced it at that level. The good news is if it worked for people that chronic and that critical, it will certainly work for someone who isn't that chronic and that critical.
0: You bet, yeah
1: does that make
0: any sense? It makes total sense. <laughs> it makes total and that's what I love about about doing this program is like I said last week the the forwards are coming alive where a lot of people really miss out and and, and talking this stuff through uh, there's something that that even, even myself is I've been in the program now for 24 years and it's all fresh to me. Every time I look at this with somebody else, it's all fresh, and it, it just comes alive, and I, I appreciate it so much. But it may, makes absolute, total sense. At least it does to me now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sure. There's, listen, uh, when you first get exposed to truth, or at least something that resembles truth, Yeah. the first thing you're going to do is get upset with it. I know. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't fit into your mental, mental paradigm. And certainly, if, uh, if, if, let's just say you're an alcoholic and you're working kind of a, a half-hearted program, you're not going to want to hear a lot of the things that we talk about because it really talks about a very structured, very, uh, very intense, uh, recovery process that requires a lot of participation. One of the things that, that happened in the first four years was if you came to them for help, Dr. Bob or Bill Wilson, The first thing they would do is ask you, are you willing to get over it? And if you said yes, they would put you in the hospital. Now, whether you needed to be detoxed or not, they put you in the hospital. They wanted you to know that this is chronic, this is critical, and this is medical. It's an emergency. Okay, It is an emergency. You are dying. They put them in the hospital, and then they, they marched a whole bunch of recovered or you know people that were in the AA program past them to tell their stories. That's how they approached helping people back in the day. Now we don't, you know, we don't see uh, uh, we don't see what's the, the, that it's the same nowadays. Uh, I believe that that. Uh, that most most people who would walk into a group of Alcoholics Anonymous are not going to be asked to be hospitalized. But that's what they did back then because it was very critical. Again, we need to look at this in the historical context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, the doctor's opinion. A little bit about William D. Silkworth. Uh, Silky was his nickname, and he basically was the chief physician at Towns Hospital. Towns Hospital was was in New York City and it was run by Charlie Towns and it was one of the, probably the only hospitals in America that specialized in drug and alcohol treatment okay, there were few and far between back then. First, first of all, they didn't want to treat alcoholics or people who were addicted to drugs in normal hospitals. They still don't, you know. Uh, they do begrudgingly, and, and some some hospitals will, will put together detox units uh, or addiction units, uh, but, but it was not something that people wanted to do. So the fact that a hospital was built on uh, Specifically for that purpose, in New York City, near Bill Wilson was, was a very, very good thing. Bill went there a number of times. Uh, it, the, the number is different uh, when you look, look at it from different historians, but at least seven to ten times he was in town's hospital to be detoxed. Um, and some of the detoxing procedures were, uh, were, were pretty scary. When we get into Bill's story, I'll talk a little bit about them. Uh, there was a great book uh, that, that's been written called Chasing the Dragon. For anybody that's interested in, uh, in the history of alcoholism and drug treatment, that's, that's, the, you know, that's the reference point. That's the encyclopedia uh, that you need to go to. Uh, but some, some of the treatment processes prior to the spiritual process were horrific. You would not believe some of the things uh, that they would do. You know, there are still countries that do things like if you're a chronic alcoholic and you get arrested more than a number of times, they'll pour, uh, they'll pull they will pour molten lead down your throat. You know, I mean, if you don't get it after that, uh, they're done with you. you know? I, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty scary. Uh, still to this day, there are some uh, there are some really crazy things going on. But the fact of the matter is, why I'm saying this is. Charlie Towns treated you know, tens of thousands of alcoholics in his stay there as chief physician. He got to see a lot. Patterns start to emerge. Now, the science of addiction was not very far along uh, when, uh, when he was practicing. And some, some of the things that they did, we would look on and laugh today. But that's the best they had back then. But what what was good was he had so many of these people run through that he started to be able to establish types. You know, he he would know if you were uh, if you were uh, a, a hopeless alcoholic, you're going to die. You know, that's basically he knew that that would happen, and he would know if you had any hope, and he would know if uh, you know if this might work for you or that might work for you. But he started establishing you know information and kind of a mental database about this alcoholism thing. He was not an alcoholic himself, but working with a lot of them, he started to see how they operated, and he learned a lot. And he was basically to give Bill Wilson, in a nutshell, what the problem of alcoholism, and in my book, what the problem of addiction is. And I don't know how far we'll get into the doctor's opinion, but uh, we'll get started. Another thing is, though, is that he did not sign it. Okay, You have to understand, in this letter, he basically says, these people that I've met that have a spiritual solution have something that's working. Pay attention to it, and I encourage it. But he would not sign that letter. That would basically be like a modern doctor, a modern psychiatrist saying, well, you know, I'm working with all these people, but there's a guy down the street with an Ouija board that seems to be healing all of them. So uh, I encourage that because, uh, you know, I don't want anybody to suffer. I encourage it. And, you know, please pay attention to that Ouija board guy. But he's not going to sign it because it's going to make him the laughingstock of his profession. That's kind of what, uh, what uh, Silkworth's position was. You know, he hesitated to put his, uh, put credibility to the letter with his signature until later on when Alcoholics Anonymous was established to a point where he saw it as legitimate and absolutely valid and he was not afraid for his career to associate himself with it. Hmm. The doctor's opinion. <clears throat> we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Again, you need to take this in context. This was one, uh, one medical director's opinion on alcoholism in 1939. Uh, you know, they have, they have uh, mental health criteria and everything is completely different today. But convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician, and a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. To whom it may concern, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a, com- a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of the type I had come to regard as Hopeless. He knew hopeless alcoholics died. You could treat them, you could make them better, you could put a Band-Aid on their wound, but he knew they'd come in, come in, come in, and then one day they wouldn't come in anymore. They'd be dead. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was what would happen with him. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. What those ideas were were ideas that came from the Osher group, and we'll talk about that later. As part of his, of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. That's one alcoholic working with another, trying to get them through the steps. Right. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They they may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. That was the first letter. Actually, uh, historically, you can find online the original forms of the letter the way uh, William D. Silkworth wrote them. Bill took uh, editorial license and chopped them up here and there. Uh, uh, I don't believe he he put any content in that Silkworth didn't already have, but he arranged the letters for this book. So, Anybody who has a a deeper... uh, a deeper interest in this can find uh, those letters on, I think, um, silkworth.net. Uh, there's there's a lot of, um, of big book history sites where you can find them. Okay. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or that we were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. You know, what they've learned since the printing of this book is, is how alcohol is processed, with, uh, with the pancreas and the liver and, mm-hmm. and the cardiovascular system of a chronic alcoholic. The chronic alcoholic is not processing it the way uh, a normal temperate drinker would. What, right. what happens is, you know, those particular organs deteriorate or change and they just aren't metabolizing uh, in the same way. And, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can't explain that process better than uh, what I've just done. There are many, many studies out there that will show uh, the process uh, of what happens uh, in, uh, in an alcoholic when they consume alcohol. The basic thing that we need to know is that once, uh, once those organs have, um, have developed to the point where they aren't processing like a normal drinker, it creates what's known as a phenomenon of craving. He's going to talk more about that later. But what that is is that it's an almost unresistible urge, an almost irresistible urge to put more alcohol in your body.
0: And that never happens in the normal temperate drinker.
1: He's saying it never happens in the normal temperate drinker, right. and, and uh, I think I think that's the facts bear that out. Yeah, uh, I I think that with most chronic alcoholics, once once they start drinking. They have to be separated by uh, not being able to get any more, by passing out, or by police. <laughs> <You> know, those, <laughs> those are the three ways they'll separate while they're on their run. Yeah. Um, the, the, doctor's, uh, the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual plane, as well as the altruistic plane, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he is in a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Certainly, um, if you're the type of person who's out there doing 12-step calls or helping alcoholics or answering the phone, you know, in the phone lines that, that they have, you do have to understand that there's a, there's a, a responsibility to, um, uh, to at least let people know that uh, detoxing from alcohol at, at a certain stage in alcoholic addiction is, uh, is dangerous. Uh, you can stroke out that's what happens a lot you can uh, you know you can go into convulsions your aorta can pop it's it's just not uh, not a good state to be in so it still is a good idea we still favor hospitalization for the people who are going through delirium tremens or in severe alcoholic withdrawal Uh, you want them to be uh, safe medically and it's it's pretty easy for the, the hospitals to make them safe usually They'll give them uh, Librium or, or or some other sedative, and uh, and and that'll that'll at least calm their bodies down during the detox uh, process, so that their blood pressure will come down, and they'll they'll get them, They can get them safe.
0: There was and, uh, I was gonna say there's there was a gentleman when I was working up in Yosemite uh, Park National Park uh, that worked in the kitchen that was uh, an alcoholic of the hopeless uh, variety, and uh, every once in a while he would try and go go call. call excuse me, go cold turkey, and the senior uh, uh, chef there, the executive chef, always kept a bottle of Wild Turkey 101 on the shelf just for this guy. And I think the three years I worked there, I think it probably happened about five times where they needed to get that down him as he went into seizure uh, just to get him to the hospital.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's a good idea. And another thing that's going to be controversial is uh, if you're going on a twelve-step call. Sometimes it's a good idea, unless you know uh intimately know the situation involved sometimes it's a good idea to have alcohol i've done many many uh what what is called 12 uh, step calls which is basically somebody calls for help they need to get to the detox they they want to stop drinking their their you know their life is getting unbelievably ugly and uh what what i recommend is uh, is airline bottles uh, you get yourself a half a dozen whiskeys a half a dozen, dozen vodka's you keep them in your car, and uh, you know if, if, if on the way from the person's house, talking them into the car to the hospital, it looks really, really grim. Uh, you can, you know, you can, uh, you can make the decision. If you have some experience, you can make the decision on whether or not you think that the person needs some alcohol. At some, at some detoxes, also uh, you can't bring in somebody that's not drunk. So. I know many, many people who get people drunk uh, to take them to treatment, because otherwise they're not going to get admitted. Mm-hmm. But it's a crazy situation out there today. You know, yes. If we get a chance, we'll talk about the political uh, uh, ramifications of treatment uh, that are going on that are not really great. Uh, uh, but um, uh, anyway, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off here, uh, we're going to, Next week we'll get into the second half, basically, Good. Of, uh, of the doctor's opinion. But, again, just to talk a little bit about the importance of what Silkworth armed Bill with. <laughs> mm-hmm. He armed him with the facts about himself. He armed him with the knowledge that he has an abnormal body that is not going to tolerate alcohol uh without creating uh, uh creating what he called an allergy which we now call today uh, the phenomenon of craving uh which is basically well one drink is uh, is really asking for the second drink uh, the second drink is demanding the third drink the third drink is absolutely insisting on the fourth drink and the more alcohol in an alcoholic's body the more craving there is so Silkworth basically explained that to Bill. Then he explained that there's a mental capacity to this, too. And, and we'll get into that in the second half of the letter. But the fact of the matter is, is Silkworth knew that these people really did want to get over drinking, but there was a disconnect. There was something that kept them from being able to access sound judgment at certain times in their life. And people that, were, that have sworn off and, you know, they're cured and thank you so much, are back in a week, you know, almost dying from drinking again. And, and he, he basically armed Bill with uh, the medical estimate from 1939, the medical estimate. And that really helped Bill work with people because it helped him to explain the powerlessness of alcoholism. It helped him to explain just how much trouble these people actually were in. That this is more serious than you think. And when you're able to pass that information on to somebody and help to convince them, or to convince themselves that they're in real trouble, then there's a little bit more participation in the stuff that's got to come uh, come next, the participation in the recovery process. I can't tell you how many people I've seen over the years who it, it would be the absolute best decision in their life to give up drinking, yet they don't. And, and to basically say they're just choosing not to get sober, misses the whole point. Yeah. It's a much, much deeper and bigger problem. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of misunderstanding about alcoholism. There are, there are, there are major political figures today that, that have made statements saying they're doing it to themselves. Why should we give them money? I, I mean, there's, there's, there's a wholesale misunderstanding because it's such an unorthodox illness. Uh, Silkworth recognized it. What Silkworth didn't know was there was a spiritual recovery process. Bill Wilson learned that from the Oxford Group. So having the problem and having the solution is where Alcoholics Anonymous started.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, you were talking about the the power of choice, and you know, you know, basically, why don't why doesn't the guy just stop drinking? You know, I, I see this with uh, folks in recovery that have been in recovery a while that are still smoking. You know, I, I've got a very very dear friend who. Um, every time I see him with a cigarette in his hand I mean he with all of his heart he says I just wish I could not smoke and he and people say well he doesn't really mean it otherwise he wouldn't smoke well that's not true is it
1: You know funny thing about funny thing about nicotine addiction I've uh, you know, I've, I've interviewed on on my show quite a few uh, nicotine cessation experts mm-hmm. you know nicotine addiction experts and uh, so here's here's some facts. Here's some facts that have come out of some serious studies. And this first one is scary, Monty. Out of uh, out of anyone who gets sober in a 12-step uh, clean or sober in a 12-step uh, uh, recovery process and gets long-term sobriety. Fifty two percent of them will die from nicotine misuse.
0: Oh man. So
1: over half of the people that get sober or get clean and have long term sobriety recovery will die over over half of them will die from complications relating to nicotine misuse. Now another thing that's very, very interesting is there's a high proportion of smokers among alcoholics and drug addicts, even in recovery. Mm-hmm. There's an addiction piece that's much stronger with alcoholics and drug addicts than there are with the normal population. Listen, there's, a, there's been millions of people who've given up smoking. As soon as the Surgeon General started stamping that on the pack, Monty, people were throwing them away, and it was no big deal. Mm-hmm. The people that are still smoking in many instances have, just have higher characteristics of addiction. And you know this has basically been told to me by a number of uh, of, of uh, addiction uh, nicotine addiction experts. So it's it's a concern. I mean, if it's going to kill half of us before our time, you know, who are who are in recovery, I think we should be paying attention to it.
0: I think we should be paying big attention to it, and that's why when they when our uh, our particular home group one of the last, one of the last groups in uh, our area that had smoking meetings. Uh, there was a real push to, hey, man, aren't we supposed to be applying these things in all our affairs? Why not apply them to, to the smoking thing? Of course, it was a big controversial thing. You know, you didn't have to buy pizza and, and pot to bring people to a business meeting. All you had to say, we're going to have a non-smoking meeting vote. And that brought everybody out of the woodwork. You know, But uh, I do think, I, I do really honestly believe that there are areas in our lives that we're just being ridiculous if we don't seek to uh, improve on those you know one of my biggest struggles it is, is it has to do with um, you know eating improper foods and I struggle with that all the time and to a place where uh, I I'm very undisciplined with it um, but I, I also know and this isn't to minimize anything but I also know that I don't do what I used to do, and a lot of the reasons that I don't do some of the things, I don't binge eat anymore, that kind of thing, is because of the application of the 12 steps. And uh, if I do not apply and implement those principles in my life when it comes to the food situation, um, I will surely die way before my time.
1: The application of the 12 steps goes uh, across the board. We we talked the other week, is there's over 200 uh, 12-step groups uh, that that use the 12 steps, and basically the only thing they change is step one, what are you powerless over? There you go. And step 12, who do you need to work with? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's, there's OA, there's, uh, there's Food Addicts Anonymous, and many people go into those fellowships at a bottom, at a low point in their life with a sense of desperation, the same way people show up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And with that sense of desperation and with good uh, good guidance and sponsorship, they can be shown how big their problem is and if they have the willingness to apply the principles in their lives, uh, they they can become abstinent. You know, becoming abstinent with food is different than with uh, oh. with alcohol or drugs because you you have to continue <laughs> you
0: have to eat. eat. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah.
1: But what they will do is they will only eat the food that has been planned out that day. Right. So that will be portioned. Uh, you know, in the morning. And if they adhere to that, if then they've, they've been abstinent. They, you know. Right. Right. So. Uh, so again these these principles are spiritual in their nature, and if when practice is a way of life can expel uh the obsession for almost any obsessive compulsive disorder
0: yeah, yeah, all right, great stuff well, Chris, once again, it has been uh, just uh, just a privilege and an honor to to be able to do this show it's It's been great i hope you have a great week, my friend next week we're going to be talking about uh the second letter from the doctor. And uh, going on from there, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: All right. Thank you so much, my friend. God bless you.
1: Bye to you. You're the best. Take care. All right, brother.
0: Don't forget, my friends, to come back next week when once again, together, we walk through the Big Book. Bye-bye now.